Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. This, of course, is a listener-supported podcast. I am very, very busy at the moment, but I'm able to justify it because... You guys are so great at supporting me. Currently, I have two jobs, this podcast and also lecturing in a university, both of which jobs I really enjoy. But yeah, sometimes when you've got a lot of work and you've got a lot of work load and you've got a lot of work to take home with you, it can sometimes seem like all you do is work, 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 as Rihanna says. Unlike Rihanna, though, we are supported by some fabulous people on Patreon. So 
as a handy segue, which was probably the strangest thing I've ever done, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails to give a little bit every month and get an awful lot back in return. An hour of extra content is yours for $5 a month. For $2 a month, you get these episodes ad-free and also accessing these scripts. For $6, you get to play the delegation game, which involves you designing an avatar and then sending him to Paris and letting me know that he's on his way, and we can then see what he gets up to. It'll probably be pretty crazy, considering the fact that we recently had several casualties in the Hotel Twomley and everyone had to move to the Hotel Zachary. Oh yes, I'm naming the hotels after myself, because I'll never get a chance to do that at any other time in my life, so I might as well take that opportunity now. The delegation game is crazy, it's so much fun, but it also takes a good bit of work and preparation to get through. I have been asked before how I managed to do all this stuff, and again, I have to emphasize, it wouldn't be possible without you guys. Without you guys supporting me and egging me on to just do more history already, darn it, I wouldn't be in this position right now. I also wouldn't be lecturing any university in the first place, because this podcast essentially got me that job. Well, I mean, I also have two degrees, so that probably helped as well. But yes, it is a brilliant thing to be able to say, this podcast has gotten me all of this. So we are not abandoning it anytime soon, even though February is a mad month for this podcast, because it was a mad month for the Paris Peace Conference. I'm not going to bombard you guys anymore with these little introduction little bits. All I'm going to say is, welcome to the podcast. And if this is your first time listening, I hope you enjoy what you hear. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 32. Today is the 6th of February 2019, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. The famous historian A.J.P. Taylor, writing in his 1966 tome, 
From Napoleon to Lenin, Historical Essays, posed a question which, in the early spring of 1919, was of profound importance. The question was, who rules in Berlin? A.J.P. Taylor wrote, Who rules in Berlin? The question once dominated German history. Now it torments all the world. In our impatience and anxiety, we are led to hope that one day the German people may rule in Berlin. That outcome is, in the long run, unavoidable. It will be tolerable only if there also rules in Berlin. Awareness of a community of nations. It is for the Germans to seek unity on a democratic and pacific basis. The great powers must ensure that the Germans do not promote unity by a program of foreign aggression. At the present time, both the Germans and the great powers are failing in their task, and the question, who rules in Berlin, has lost none of its menacing character. Of course, the correct answer to the question of who rules in Berlin in the first week of February 1919 was nobody. The political apparatus of the new German Republic had been moved, after all, to the city of Weimar. It was in Weimar and not Berlin that Friedrich Ebert's new Germany would be constituted, elected and formulated. Everything from the composition of the first elected government to the formulation of the new constitution to the fierce debate over the Treaty of Versailles would take place in this town and all in the course of only a few months. A great deal had happened since the crushing of the Spartacist revolt in mid-January. Above all, it was the first proper election to the National Assembly on the 19th of January that established the democratic legitimacy of the new republic. That, at least, was Ebert's intention. We can say that it was a success, with 83% turnout and with the voting age reduced to 20 for all men and women, without any preconditions. Judged on those criteria alone, this election was potentially the most democratic in the world. The assembly which was elected would have two major tasks. First, to form some kind of government, and second, to approve the new constitution. Encouraging though the turnout was, this national assembly was unmistakably a transitional tool, because it was designed first and foremost to sort out the constitution. Once the constitution was crafted, Germans would go to the polls again, with very different results as we'll see. Initially though, in January 1919, the elections returned a majority for Ebert's regime, thus granting him the mandate he needed, but not enough to form a government. His Social Democratic Party was the largest party, but it had only won just below 38% of the vote, or 165 seats, whereas 212 seats were required to form a governing majority. This wasn't so bad in 1919, because the other large parties in the centre and centre-right would support him. In the 1920 election, though, the following year, as we'll see, these three major parties, all together, would only win 48% of the vote, necessitating cooperation with some of the further fringe parties, a fact which eventually weakened the Republic and rotted it from within. Thus began one of the more infamous trends of the Weimar Republic, the invocation of a coalition system which would characterise this German flirtation with democracy. Throughout its existence, no one party would ever possess enough seats to form a government all by itself. This led to coalitions being the norm, a fact which by no means insinuated that German democracy was inherently unstable. Just look at France for crying out loud. They had coalitions for days, and they turned out reasonably alright. Yet the coalition partners on offer, and the personalities which led these partners, mixed with the tumultuous circumstances of the interwar years, helped to undermine what might have been a stable system, 
had the Weimar Republic been ruled by one party at a time. The contemporary of these foundational political years, later an author during the Second World War, Erich von Kuhnelt-Leden, was able to note on the fundamental flaws of the Weimar Republic's party system, upon reflection in 1943. Kuhnelt-Leden said, Catholic centrists wanted to create conditions in Germany which would make it easier for the individual to save their souls. Socialists denied the existence of souls and divided people into classes. The German nationalists were interested in language and culture, while the national socialists put the stress on race. Whereas some looked at pocketbooks, others at the pigmentation of the skin or the index of the skull, fruitful discussions became impossible. When the speaker of one party indulged in his oratory, the others walked out. It was not worthwhile to listen to somebody's opinion when you knew that his premises were all wrong. The grim determination to silence the unconvincible enemy by execution or imprisonment already existed prior to 1933 in many parties. When asking why the Weimar Republic fell, though, the answer is not as simple as the political parties did it. In fact, historians can generally pinpoint several key reasons, four of which had to do with the internal makeup of the state. The judiciary, the army, the civil service and the president's powers, all of which were affected by the adoption of the constitution later in 1919, confirmed the establishment of the independent, right-wing nature of the army, civil service and judiciary, the core of which had been left over from the pre-1914 era. Additionally, the sweeping powers of the president in safe hands could be used to protect democracy and shield the republic from external or internal threats to its stability. Note that I emphasised safe hands there because in the wrong hands, Article 48 of the Constitution allowed the president to suspend the Constitution and govern by decree so there was grave potential for abuses of it should a wrong-handed president come along. Under Friedrich Ebert, the potential abuse of this office was unlikely, possessed as Ebert was with strong convictions to represent the office responsibly to the world. From 1925 onwards, though, when Hindenburg became president and gradually declined in mental health until his death in 1934, it was dangerously easy for one to manipulate the president or act in his name. The president sat for a term of seven years, but he was directly elected by the people, so this seemed to act as a further safeguard in the office from radical or fringe opinions. 1919 was a year of establishment for the Weimar Republic, so before examining the National Assembly which was elected on the 19th of January and convened on the 6th of February, it is worth examining the constitution that this assembly produced in August of that year. Until the constitution was approved and became official, the Weimar Republic would exist in something of a limbo. According to the opinion of at least one historian though, this constitution was worth waiting for despite its flaws which were, unfortunately, later exploited. There was much for Germans to be positive about when they examined its democratic credentials and liberal potential, as the historian Stephen J. Leo pined in his History of the Weimar Republic, saying, The theoretical framework of the Weimar Constitution was impeccably democratic. The document aimed to combine the principles of the first ten amendments of the Constitution of the United States, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, and 20th century refinements. Hence, by Article 1, political authority emanates from the people. The electoral system was as advanced as anywhere in Europe, based on universal, equal, direct and secret suffrage by men and women over 20 years of age, according to the principle of proportional representation. 
It was heavily influenced by Belgian and Dutch methods, which related the number of votes cast to the size of party representation in Parliament. In Germany, this meant one Reichstag seat for every 60,000 votes cast in the country at large. The result was that the smaller groups could be included alongside the major parties, allowing for the representation of all interests, whether class, religious, local or sectional. The electorate also had plebiscitary powers, electing every seven years the president, who, as befitted a republican constitution, replaced the former Kaiser as head of state. We don't need to spend much time analysing the Weimar Republic's party system, since it can get confusing, but it does help to make a few points about it before we go any further. The elections which were held on the 19th of January 1919 were actually repeated again a year and a half later, in June 1920. The reason for this was because circumstances had changed in that 18-month period, and because the main task of the National Assembly, that of creating the Constitution, had been achieved. More seats had also been added to the Reichstag, 459 instead of 424 in 1919. And of course, the Treaty of Versailles had been passed, shaping the presentation and ideology of the majority of the parties then in existence. The shifting moods of the German people are also palpable when considering the 1920 election results. The Social Democratic Party lost a third of its seats from 1919, and several other parties rose up in the vacuum. A tale of the tape reveals how, in fewer than two years, the problems posed by German political representation and unorthodoxy were making themselves strongly felt. The Social Democratic Party remained the largest party in the Reichstag, but now it had fallen even shorter than before, in 1919, of a majority needed to rule by itself. The second largest party was the old far-left portion of the Social Democratic Party, the Independent Social Democratic Party. But the third largest was the far-right German National People's Party, which won 15% of the vote. In time, this German National People's Party would provide invaluable coalition partners for another far-right party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NSDAP, a.k.a. the Nazi Party. What were the Nazi Party doing by this point? Well, by June 1920, with Hitler in charge of its propaganda and its bizarre ideology established, which involved criticism of the Treaty of Versailles and anti-Semitism above all, the 31-year-old Adolf Hitler had at least learned of his own ability to speak to a crowd and fire them up. For the longest time, this was all the party had to distinguish itself from the interminable list of other similarly-minded parties which could be found across the political spectrum of early 1920s Germany. The party which would later change the course of world history had fewer than 2,000 members by the time of the June 1920 elections. Such a small amount, in fact, that the NSDAP didn't even contest these elections. The 1920 elections in the Weimar Republic provided an eerily prophetic anticipation of the final judgment on that state. That there were just too many parties sharing too much of the vote, and no party was strong enough to rule alone. One of these parties sharing in the votes was the German People's Party, not to be confused with the German National People's Party, and it won 13% of the vote, yet within a few years its leading light, Gustav Streismann, would serve as Chancellor and lead the Weimar Republic for much of the roaring, and then turbulent, 1920s. So the 18-month period from the election of the National Assembly to the new elections in June 1920 
can be considered a transition period, with the main goal being the proclamation of a constitution. Once that was done, the people and the statesmen would know where they stood, what powers each institution of the Republic had, and where the new systems were going to all fit. I should issue a reminder that while the pre-1914 German Empire did contain some forward-thinking, democratic elements such as suffrage for all men over the age of 25, the act of establishing a completely democratic German Republic was a very new experience. In addition, there was much for the likes of Ebert and the opposition parties to be preoccupied with, such as the question of when Germans would be invited to negotiate on the terms of the final peace deal, how much Germany would have to pay, and when the blockade of Germany by the Royal Navy would be ended and food would be allowed back in the country. Those questions were more important to Friedrich Ebert and company in spring 1919 than what happened to the Weimar Republic later on down the line, and they're more important to us as well. But still, it is interesting to see how the public reacted to Ebert's policies and to that transformative period in German history when, in the space of 18 months, much of the foundations for the ill-fated Republic were laid down. The National Assembly, which gathered in Weimar on this day 100 years ago, was therefore not the final government or state model which would persist until 1933. Instead, Germans had gone to the polls, and they had voiced their approval for Ebert's moderate left-of-centre Social Democratic Party. But this did not mean that Ebert's party was destined to rule over Germany. It's a bit confusing, but the long and short of it is that he had been given a mandate, but only a mandate to make the constitution, with his party technically having the greatest input, since it had been given the most seats in this assembly. But he had also been confirmed as the temporary, provisional head of state, within a state that was still in flux. It had, after all, only been four months since the abdication of the Kaiser and the proclamation of a republic. Nobody could quite say what this new republic would look like, and so a constitution was necessary. However, creating this would take time, and Ebert knew that everyone couldn't just stand aside while it was deliberated, thus a temporary government was needed as well, and this temporary government would be better than the last one, because it would have the stamp of approval which only the people could have provided. Reflecting the fact that the Weimar Republic was entering a transitional phase, on the 8th of February a bill concerning the provisional exercise of political power was passed. This bill contained only 10 paragraphs, and it was intended to smooth over the cracks and answer the most burning questions about how the state was to be effectively run until the constitution could be hammered out. It also provided a measure of stability, because although its contents were not debated for very long, this bill was passed in the National Assembly, thus granting legitimacy to Ebert's presidential regime, since perhaps the most important point expressed in the bill was that which established how the state would be run. As the historian Eberhard Kolb noted, The business of the Reich was conducted by a president to be elected by the National Assembly. He would in turn appoint the cabinet, whose members must possess the confidence of the National Assembly. While all these arrangements were designated provisional, in practice the basic structure of the constitution, with the Reichstag, president and cabinet, was thus predetermined before the constitutional discussions began. In that extract just there, we can observe several important facts. First, that the state was still being referred to as the Reich, which is interesting. Second, that the president was being placed on a pedestal from which he could wield impressive powers. And third, that this bill anticipated the constitution and was effectively 
adopted as part of the constitution within a few months. Now I know this whole process appears unimportant in the grand scheme of things, and maybe you're just finding it massively confusing and you're about to turn off this episode, but wait! I believe it is important and appropriate to see how post-war Germany developed during these critical weeks. If nothing else, guys, it helps to demonstrate the significance of this moment for Germans everywhere. It was a period of transition, but also of change. Throughout Germany, Ebert had worked hard to find some sort of solution to the problem in the East. Uncertainty reigned because it was not clear what would be done with Poland, the Czechs or the Baltic states. The situation in the Balkans was a little clearer cut as Yugoslavia had arrived in December and Ebert's government cared little for that region in any case. Yet the unclear state of affairs with respect to Poland must have kept him awake at night. According to the 14 points, Poland was to be given access to the sea and according to the armistice terms, Germany was to evacuate all the territories she had been occupying following the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. The Germans were far from ignorant about what the Poles were doing. From the 27th of December 1918, the so-called Great Polish Uprising began, lasting sporadically until the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. At its core, it resembled an attempt by Poles in all regions formerly under German occupation to throw off the German yoke, but it was seen most effectively in these successful campaigns for Posen, or Poznan, and Silesia. By the middle of January, the Poles had evicted the German presence from Poznan County and declared it part of the new Polish state. By the end of that month of January, Ebert's government worried that the Poles were launching another fait accompli in Silesia, a region of critical importance for food and industry. Under criticism from the Allies in Paris that the Poles were getting far too big for their boots and marching into all regions where a lick of Polish might be found, a Polish commission was tasked with solving this problem. We saw this happen before, and we also saw how sympathy for the Poles among the Allies was varying between low or very conditional, especially among the British. David Lloyd George's biographer made the following observation on one of his subjects' most enduring hatreds, that being the Poles, of course, writing, As a nonconformist radical, he could hardly feel any great love for a landlord-ridden country more stubborn in its attachment to the Roman Catholic faith than any other part of Europe, save Ireland. But he also seems to have been prejudiced against the Poles as a poor business race. In the matter of the Danzig Corridor, he sided with Germany against the Poles and President Wilson. In the matter of Silesia, he sided with Germany against the Poles and the French. You cannot, he is reported as saying, place millions of Germans who, whatever their faults, are a very advanced people under the dominion of the Poles, who are far less civilised. We will see how, in time, Lloyd George would have a profound impact on the Treaty of Versailles' Polish elements, but in late January to early February, he was also making it a point of honour not to allow the Poles to take Silesia. Lloyd George would bring in other pillars in his argument too. Why worry about angering the Poles, where the Germans were the real threat? Why bother helping the Poles, since they would soon fall to Bolshevism? Why should the Allies invest money into such an expansionist, aggressive state, which was preying then upon the weakness of its Lithuanian, Ukrainian or German neighbours? To Friedrich Ebert, the contentious Polish question provided him with opportunities, but he found that he was not in a great position to exploit these opportunities. When he was told that Germany would need 6,000 soldiers to evict the Poles from West Prussia, 
In other words, that corridor which would in the end separate Germany from East Prussia and provide Poland with its path to the sea. All he could do was note that the government had to rely on diplomacy because she had no troops to spare. When the Allies then sent word that, in order to block the spread of Bolshevism and preserve the stability of Eastern Europe, Germany must not withdraw its troops from the Baltic states, the German High Command had a field day, but Ebert was less sure. Attempting to absorb Lithuanians, Estonians and Latvians, as the German High Command and the Fry Corps that they now commanded wanted, would present their own problems, notwithstanding how satisfying it would look on a map, or that it would give the Fry Corps something to actually do. Germany, of course, had its own problems, and it was less than four months removed from an atrocious war, also less than a month removed from a traumatic rebellion against the government's legitimacy and authority. The Silesian problem refused to go away, though. In the event, the issue would not be solved until May 1922, with the so-called Geneva Accord, and this only after the entire question had been passed into an independent commission within the League of Nations. Three uprisings, occurring each year from 1919, ensured that the Silesian issue could not be ignored. The reported brutality of the Fry Corps was matched only by the alleged atrocities committed against ethnic Germans. It was a really terrible time, in case you didn't know, in a conflict which has mostly been forgotten today, but which played no small part in fanning the flames of German hatred towards Poland in the interwar years. The Fry Corps were actively involved in the conflict, but so was a peacekeeping mission consisting of French, British and Italian soldiers. Accusations flew around that the French were relishing the sight of these insurrections, and the French commander actually prevented the British and Italians from supporting the Germans on a few occasions. The problem was that the region was so contested, with a virtually even split between German and Pole in several areas. The solution, which was eventually envisaged, consisted of a nearly completely even split of the region into two parts. To make up for the loss of coal to the German economy, the Poles agreed to provide 50,000 tonnes of coal at knockdown prices, but when this treaty expired in 1925, the issue degenerated into a tariff war which only served to sour relations further. Hatred towards Poland was felt by a sizable majority of the German population, especially once the Poles were seen to gain so much at Germany's expense. Most Germans loathed the new Polish Republic and saw it as illegitimate from the beginning. It didn't help that a sizable portion of the Fry Corps veterans of the Silesian campaigns subsequently joined another organisation, the Nazi Party's Stormtroopers, or SA, wherein tales of what had been done to the Poles and what had been suffered by the German population in Silesia became party canon. The Nazis were eager indeed to associate themselves with this Silesian conflict, and early members of the party found that their war tales were finding welcome ears among the party faithful. The warping of the narrative of this horrible little post-war conflict did, after all, fit in with the Nazi image of the Slavs as backward, barbaric squatters sitting on German land. Speaking of the Fry Corps, during the spring of 1919, although Ebert did not directly approve of their use, he could not control all of his government's representatives, some of whom were only too happy to squelch the parliamentary extremism which had arisen during the recent chaotic months with some extremists of their own. Employing the Fry Corps benefited everyone, it was said, because it gave these men something useful to do, which then kept them out of other trouble, and it also eliminated the threats which lurked in various cities, from Munich to Bremen, 
to Ebert's regime. We will spend more time examining the Fry Corps in due time, but as far as Ebert himself is concerned, it is worth examining the view which the historian D.K. Buse had on him. When writing his article, Ebert and the German Crisis, Buse made the following judgment of the President's legacy and also his weaknesses. Buse said, Ebert and his colleagues busied themselves with day-to-day politics such as cabinet building, constitutional amendments and erecting a Reich presidency from the bureaucracy of the old foreign office. Ebert continued in those administrative tasks to set much of the formal tone of German politics. He decisively influenced the formation of coalitions, acted as rearguard for the restructured military and kept a semblance of control during the Versailles crisis. But he was no more successful in containing the wave from the right in 1919-20 than the revolution from the left in 1917-18. Again, he was outflanked by those who did not limit themselves to discussion and voting. Again, his attempts to bridge the parties and social gaps by a popular front fell apart in the clash of interests and ideologies. It was an immensely busy time filled with extremism and instability, but Ebert's core flaw seems to have been that he did not realise or accept until it was too late that he would have to answer force with force. He went just far enough to alienate those that despised the use of force to keep the peace, such as the independent Social Democratic Party, but at the same time he didn't go far enough to satisfy those that viewed his presidency as soft and meek, as unwilling to get its hands dirty or to defend against the enemies of the Republic. While the extremist Spartacists had been brutally fought off, it is true, this was largely thanks to the availability of the Freikorps. But a greater challenge lurked in France, where unsavoury rumours of harsh punishment for Germany and of discord between the Allies reigned, and where the Freikorps would have no power. One point which was especially important for Ebert if his transitional regime must have any chance of sticking around once new elections were called, was to end the British blockade of Germany. You'll recall that according to the armistice terms, this blockade was set to continue unchanged to Ebert's immense chagrin and disappointment. Each time the armistice was renewed, so too was this article left unchanged. The fear remained intense among the Allies, especially the French, that the Germans would rebuild themselves too quickly if the hardship of the war was not brought home to them. There was much resistance to the blockade though, because although it punished Germans and taught them a lesson, starvation was a brilliant way to push Ebert's new regime into deep water and drown it in an undercurrent of Bolshevism. Woodrow Wilson was of this opinion and believed that with her gold reserves, Germany could pay for American food imports and use her own merchant marine to transport it there. Ebert mostly consented to this idea, but George Clemenceau was opposed to it, because if Germany spent all of her gold on food, then what would be left over to give reparations to the French? An additional wrinkle in the blockade policy, the moral element, was also becoming more important, particularly over the Christmas period of 1918, when the consciences of the Allies were tested on this question like never before. From the 8th of February to the 5th of March 1919, David Lloyd George would be in London dealing with the sudden explosion in industrial action and dissatisfaction at the same time with his regime. He had been so busy hammering out the New World Order that he had forgotten about the old, so it seemed, a few weeks back in Britain, and the people would be reminded of the Prime Minister's tenacity and of the gravity of the moment. Those dissatisfied coal miners, those demobilised soldiers, 
those who continued to starve due to a chronic shortage of food, these would all be calmed by well-worded appeals and messages, while these individual challenges would be dealt with, so long as it did not impinge upon Britain's capacity for participating in the Paris Peace Conference, or the related activities that came along with it. Above all, military intervention in Russia, Turkey, the Middle East, Germany or Ireland. Yet, it was while he was there that Lloyd George was made very aware of just how uncomfortable the British public were beginning to feel about something that he had evidently devoted very little thought to, the Navy's current blockade of Germany. I feel it is impossible to overestimate the necessity for extreme care and the fullest possible understanding on our side of the economic situation in Germany, which, failing economic supplies, is literally desperate. Continuation of the blockade without explanation or promises for the future creates a fatalistic spirit of helpless fear in the minds of those who should be endeavouring to prepare for the reorganisation of economic life. This increasing possibility of irrevocable disaster is only slightly less damaging to us than to the Germans. What I just read there was the bleak but also alarming report from S8, the code name given to an undercover British intelligence operative in Berlin, who reported the above to Britain's political intelligence department in early February 1919. After so many weeks of disbelief, it was reported that, in fact, the purported revolution in Germany had been genuine and democracy had in fact taken root. The monarchy and the militarists had taken flight, to their immense discredit, and only republicans remained. But these were republicans who were starving, and liable to be overthrown by radicalism, if all could not access food supplies on a regular, reliable basis soon. S8 was not the only figure who felt this way. Whereas the spy had stressed the damage to Britain's strategic position, newspapers like the Manchester Guardian had been stressing since the previous December, that is December 1918, the damage to Britain's moral fibre and reputation abroad, which the continued blockade of Germany represented. The political intelligence department itself, particularly its German section, had been filing gloomy reports since the end of the war, warning that the more she was pushed, the worse the situation would become for Germany's citizens, and the more desperate and extremist they would become as a result. Britain had to stem this tide before it was too late, Indeed, it almost seemed too late during the Spartacist uprisings through the second week of January, prompting a response at last from members of the delegation then in Paris. Lord Balfour directed what became the first of eight missions sent into Germany between January and March 1919, all of which were ostensibly fact-finding exercises, since so little was practically known about the state of Germany on the ground. In his book Examining British Relations with the Weimar Republic during 1918-19, the historian Douglas Newton, who you may recognise from his excellent book Darkest Days, The Truth Behind Britain's Rush to War in 1914, outlined what these missions sent by Balfour broadly looked like, saying, The officers generally took up residence in the best hotel in the city and ate well in the hotel restaurants. They were often escorted in their investigations into the condition of the people by German military officers, some of whom were Freikorps activists. Usually, the British officers on mission spurned officials of the local soldiers and workers' councils and preferred to deal with their surviving officer corps of the old army. However, the first missions generally found some contacts thrust upon them because, early in the revolution, the local workers' and soldiers' councils were sharing power with town hall officials. 
Again, the victorious powers reluctance to give any sign of endorsement to the new regime was clearly signalled. Over the course of 1919, Ebert's transitional government would gradually get rid of these workers' and soldiers' councils and replace them with the more democratically respectable local assemblies. These workers' and soldiers' councils had popped up in the immediate emergency which followed the essential collapse of Wilhelm II's regime. But when you're making a new regime, you need to replace the old, so that's what they were doing. The reluctance of the British to accept the situation as it was is palpable in the orders given by one of the commanding officers to the travelling mission in early January, which read, Carefully study the whole question of the supply of food by the Allies to Germany and report on the extent to which the food shortage is a real menace to the country and whether assistance, if sent, can be made proper use of and will reach those who are most in need of it. You will understand that it is no part of the Allied plan to feed the poorer classes so as to release more food for the wealthy classes. It was almost as though the British didn't believe that by limiting the amount of food going into a country, the people on the ground would starve. Germany was also caught between a developing, mostly hostile Eastern Europe and a recalcitrant France, so there was little hope of, for instance, getting food imported from other areas. The Americans had the food surplus, but for far too long, this food was held off out of the fear it would sacrifice the leverage which the Allies had. This attitude, while we might regret it today, is understandable on the part of the Allies, and it is also understandable too that it must have been difficult to think of the German children in this respect when Zeppelins had terrified British and French children alike only a few months before. The point is, though, because the war was only technically on pause with the armistice, the British were content to still view Germany as the enemy, since, according to the rules of international law, she still was the enemy. Now this did not stop segments of the British press from seeing the situation differently, even if it was the government that had the final say on policy. In the conflict between what was morally right and strategically sensible, the Manchester Guardian, as we have seen, came down firmly on the side of the argument which insisted that Germany must be given a chance to prove her democratic credentials rather than be choked for the sins of her past governments. An editorial on the 10th of May 1919, which shows how long the debate was still raging on how best to treat Germany if they were still writing about it in May, The Guardian noted, When Germany overthrew her military autocracy, it was undoubtedly in the hope and belief that, as a democratic state in line with other democratic states of Europe, she might escape from her past and be regarded as having in some degree at least atoned for her errors. So she was told, and so we ourselves at least one time honestly believed. Who does not remember the declarations that, to a democratic Germany, much might be conceded, which to a Germany still militarist, still autocratic, could not be allowed? So Germany parted with her militarism, parted with her autocracy, only to then discover that she was still regarded in the same light as before. Such discoveries breed disillusionment, and are apt to be followed by reaction. If the worst has happened to her in her democratic state, might she not perhaps have fared as well or better had she not thrown her traditions and her emperor overboard? As far as Douglas Newton was concerned, British policy towards the Weimar Republic was overwhelmingly hostile, especially during the time it mattered most, from late 1918 to early 1919. After the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, only then did things begin to pick up, 
but the scars left behind took a great deal of time to heal. British suspicion at German intentions, a dislike of her socialist past and present, and a distrust of her fling with democracy read like unfortunate but also understandable errors, but we should not forget that these errors cost countless lives. It would be too late for far too many German citizens and children once the blockade was finally lifted on the 12th of July 1919, that is, over two weeks after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. By then, according to a study done in 1940, some 424,000 citizens had died as a direct result of the action. But the blockade's impact should not be measured in deaths alone. According to one 2015 article from the Economic History Review, previously hidden records were found, and these records contained as their core data the measurements of 60,000 schoolchildren between 1914 to 24. These recently discovered files concluded that malnutrition and stunted growth were rampant among at least this sample set of the war generation. We can only imagine what the results would have been if all German children had been surveyed. Now I don't want you to take this as Brit bashing of course, or as me saying, oh those dastardly Brits should have known better. I want you to know about this because it was a part of Germany's war experience, and because it reminds us that there was more to the First World War than different fronts, revolutionary technology, or, well, straight up revolutions. For others, there was simply starvation and heartbreak, and even while we don't normally dwell on these issues in this podcast, I would be irresponsible not to mention that Friedrich Ebert was right to be concerned about the impact of the blockade, that he didn't want to use the food to feed only the wealthy, and that those segments of the British population had every right to feel bad about it and to urge their government to act. Unfortunately though, the British blockade and its casualties serve as merely one more strike against the Paris Peace Conference, since, as we will see in later episodes, the Allies knew next to nothing about the country which they were planning to punish, largely because they had found it difficult to achieve much of anything by the time on this day a hundred years ago, Germans launched their brave but ultimately failed bid for democracy. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.